Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Welcome to the Times Opinion Podcast. I'm Philip Webster. I'm editor of the Redbox Morning Bulletin and the Redbox website. We have Rachel Sylvester, columnist for The Times. We have Emma Tucker, deputy editor of The Times. And we have Phil Collins, another columnist for The Times. George Osborne is the most intriguing politician of our age. He's moved from a short-termist partisan tactician to a political strategist with a long-term plan. But as the tax credit fiasco shows, his biggest flaw is still that he lacks empathy, the ability to win people over by persuading them that he understands how they feel. If he wants to become Conservative leader and Prime Minister, he's got to prove he knows that politics is about emotions as well as power. Debate about Britain's relationship with the European Union is about to heat up as David Cameron prepares to outline his desired reform package in a letter to be delivered to Brussels next week. But he faces very tricky manoeuvres. Europe's leaders don't really want to engage with him until he can reassure them that he will vote for Britain to stay in the EU. But if he does so, Eurosceptics will accuse him of reducing incentives for the rest of the EU to be amenable to Britain's requests. The effect of the Corbyn leadership, as it solidifies, will be to make Labour both interesting and irrelevant. Incompetence and extreme ideology is always newsworthy, but none of it will matter at all analytically. The opposition is not viable as an alternative government. As a result, the scale on which we measure political disaster has changed. Rachel, your column this week has all been about uh, George's emotional intelligence, or lack of it. What's gone wrong there? We thought after the omni-shambles budget, he wouldn't do it all again, and he's he's shown some improvement on that front in the last few years, but the tax credits thing seems to be a huge cock-up. Yeah, I think what that shows is he did learn after the omni-shambles budget that he had to stop taking these kind of short-term tactical decisions where you just got through the next day's headlines and you had lots of small initiatives that together added up to something. And he has been going for these much bigger 
sort of grand projet, whether it's HS2, the Northern Powerhouse. He wants to rebalance the country between North and South, take on some big, really big strategic issues, sort of long-term things. But what he hasn't learned since the Omnish Shambles budget, which the tax credit fiasco shows, is that emotional intelligence matters too. So when he was describing, you know, why the tax credit cuts wouldn't really harm people it was fine it was all about facts and figures and there were you know breakdowns of households and various distribution of income levels but he didn't really think about it as ordinary individual people you know who would have difficulty Mm. buying children's shoes as a result of these cuts and I think that's a flaw but it is a sort of if you like it's um you know a danger of the job of chancellor chancellors always think about things in terms of graphs but actually these are real people and it's a particular flaw for Osborne himself because I think he likes to think of himself or he is he's very clever but he doesn't Think, he thinks that to show emotion or to describe feelings or to, to think as people as individuals is somehow a sign of weakness. And I think the best and the, the sort of best and the greatest politicians and, and somebody who wants to be leader have to understand that there is an emotional side to politics as well. You don't think it's anything to do with his own sort of intelligence network in the Commons, whether he's failing to pick up the fact that he got this massive revolt? Well, that's, a, that's almost another point, isn't it? So he's not listening sufficiently to the backbenchers who could have warned him about this. But I think he himself should have thought it's about presentation and how you describe things mm. as much as it is about the actual policy. So it's the same with the spending review. It'll be all about cuts to this, that and the other. But if you think about something like the social care budgets that are likely to be cut if local governments cut... It's all very well talking about, you know, why local government budgets can sustain this. But actually, you're talking about sort of a grandmother in Hackney who's going to lose her 15-minute-a-day social care visit, on which she depends for sort of companionship as well as, you know, practical care. He just lacks that kind of emotional intelligence. Mm. And it's interesting, I think, Boris Johnson is the actual, is the complete opposite. He's got, he's very sort of out-there, heart-on-sleeve type person, and I've got this theory, having interviewed politicians for years and years with Alice Thompson, that, that, you know, a lot of the best politicians have some sort of tragedy or trauma in their past. An extraordinary number have lost a mm, parent when yeah. they were very young. And there's a sort of vulnerability there. They're, they're desperate to sort of fill that gap and seek endorsement. They have to win over every voter personally to prove that they love them. Margaret Hodge once said to us that, you know, it's as if politicians... Well, you know, they're, they're craving, they're trying to replace something that was missing in their childhood. They need that endorsement that perhaps they didn't have from a parent who was lacking. And if you look at the difference between Boris, whose mother had a breakdown when he was 10, went to, off to a sort of um, mm. mental home. Boris was sent off to school by his father because he couldn't really cope. And Boris learned to sort of survive on his wits and his wit. George, by comparison, had a very sort of relatively happy childhood. He was bullied a little bit at school, but that just made him want to prove mm. he was incredibly clever and better than the bullies. And it's not he, he hasn't got that sort of vulnerability. He's not willing to show a vulnerability. Phil, how do you see I, the Chancellor of the Exchequer at this moment? I mean, much like that, I agree with Rachel. I think he does lack that intelligence. I think he also made a tactical mistake here as well. So I think you're both right. Because I think he, he wanted the, the tax cut thing as a dividing line with the Labour Party when he thought there was a prospect of there being a Labour government. <laughs> so he set it really starkly, yes. far too starkly, as it turns out, because yes. there wasn't that much prospect of a Labour government, and now he's got he's reaping the consequences of his own political chicanery. He also thought, I assume, that there'd, we would have a very large number which would simultaneously box the Labour Party in 
and also be something he could trade with the Liberal Democrats in coalition negotiations. Neither of those two things have happened. And he's left with a 12 billion number that is incredibly difficult to hit. And he should have found a way to come off it. Because he doesn't need his dividing line as much as he did when he was fighting the election, that I presume that gives him some scope, though, doesn't it? Well, you would have thought so. I would expect to see something in the autumn statement where big, he'll, he'll climb down. some sort of transition. He's got to do it now in a way that looks like it's not a climb down because he's made it such a focus of his own authority that his political intelligence is on the line as well as his emotional intelligence. So and it's, and it's and not been his finest hour by any means. All politicians seem to have this amazing aversion to admitting they're going to make a U-turn or have, a, have made a U-turn, and that seems to be a problem with, uh, with Osborne as well as David Cameron. It seems to, it seems to run through this government more, <laughs> more than it has in any other. Well, perhaps he could, he, could, he could promote it as a way of proving he does indeed have emotional intelligence because I'm curious as to how a politician like George Osborne, and I agree with Rachel's diagnosis, how do you go about... We know he's, he's had a makeover in other areas. He's cut his hair, he's lost weight. What does he do now to complete the makeover by proving to the populace that he does have an emotional side? Perhaps it's by saying, I listened, I heard what you said, I was wrong. I mean, I doubt he'll do that, but but I'm curious as to know what he will do if his image makers are as good as they're purported to be. What, what are they thinking? I mean, everything that George has done has suggested that he knows that one day he's going to be running for the leadership. And it is surprising that He's, that he uh, he allows himself to fall into these this kind of mistake unless it's almost as if he hasn't made that leap from being a chancellor figure to being a leader or potential prime minister and i do think the difference is that is that kind of emotional aspect to it but i think emma's absolutely right he needs to show a willingness to listen mm. actually show an, a, a willingness to admit mistakes a sort of sense of vulnerability where you have a kind of the voters need to there needs to be some kind of chink in the armor that mm. people can see through to get to something underneath this kind of hard exterior i think it's fascinating the photographs that appear in the papers of him are often very hard and hatches faced and actually privately he's not like that at all he's absolutely he's one of the most sort of opening and engaging people to have lunch with or uh, you know chat to on a personal level he yeah. is rather open and warm but that never comes across publicly and I think he's taken a decision that the Chancellor has to be this kind of tough competent efficient figure so you know even the haircut yeah. and the diet are all about looking fi efficient and you know trim but actually now there needs to be a softer side. Mm. Yeah, he's cutting mm. the size of George Osborne as well as the size of the state. He's, <laughs> he is cursed with the wrong face, there's no question about that. Yeah. But let's, And the voice? The voice not, and the voice isn't uh, exactly magisterial either. But let's just think that possibly it isn't quite the mistake you think it is within the selector of the Conservative Party. There are a lot of Tory MPs who really like these cuts, though they wouldn't say so quite as bluntly as that. Mm. And for him to be the Iron Chancellor, absolutely adamantine in pursuit of these cuts is not necessarily quite as unpopular as it will be around this table or out there in the country mm. amongst recipients of tax credits. So there's a double edge to this conversation within the Conservative Party. Those people who don't like the tax cuts probably are going to vote for George Osborne anyway. And amongst the constituency of the floating voters, he might be finding that he's picking up a few people as well as losing them. The yeah. interesting thing is I think he will make some kind of movement on the tax credit issue. He must give some mm. transitional arrangements at least. The interesting question is whether or not he makes a big thing of that and whether he just sort of slips it through with a few little sort of jiggery-pokery amendments or whether he says, look, actually... I am listening, and he sort of presents it as a change, or whether he presents it as... That would be the clever thing to yeah. do, exactly yeah. as Emma said before. Mm. I, I think that your idea was a really good one, to make a thing of it. But I wonder, too, whether 
you agree or think that he's maybe been a bit distracted by um, this big speech he's making this week in uh, in Germany about Europe? I mean, maybe he has, maybe he hasn't, but I get the impression that he considers this speech to be incredibly important. Mm. George Osborne doesn't want to be the future, you know, prime minister of a country that's outside the European Union, I would hazard. Mm. And therefore, he's setting a letter store by this speech. And I wonder whether he took his eye off the ball. Also, if we are outside the European Union, it's very unlikely we'll be its prime minister anyway. Because as the man who's identified with the campaign, if he loses it, that will be a disaster for his chances. And you get the impression at the moment that um, both Theresa May and George uh, and uh, Boris Johnson mm. are sort of limbering up, wondering whether there w- will come a moment when one of them should jump into the no campaign. And that will be quite a big problem for Osborne at, at that stage, mm. given that only two of them can go through to the Tory electorate when the moment comes. Yeah, Theresa May was given the opportunity on Sunday by Andrew Marr to, to say definitively that she wouldn't do that and she refused that yeah. invitation oh, no. on a number of occasions. She left it very, over, didn't Very she? clearly yeah. signalling the fact that yeah. maybe. Let's move on to Europe, which um, George Osborne is David Cameron's lead negotiator in Europe. Uh, and Emma, as you, as you say, if, if, if Cameron's in a bind here, that if he shows Europe that he really cares, that he really wants to be in, the prospects of him getting the concessions he needs tends to uh, recede, unless he can really convince them that there's a danger of us going out. That's the um, catch-22 situation he's in. I think it's very tempting to say, well, look how far the European Union bent over for Greece. You know, look how far it went to sort of keep Greece in the Union. Surely, if they'll go that far for a small nation, not very rich, highly indebted nation, they would go much, much further for a country like Britain, which is a huge economic powerhouse within the the Union. So it's very tempting to think or to suggest that Cameron and, and Osborne should go in and make all sorts of incredibly high demands. The problem of course is that if they do that and they're public about it and they then don't win those concessions the Eurosceptics will be baying for their blood so you said you were going to get this and you didn't so it's a, it, they're in a very difficult situation because on the one hand they've got to sort of show that they're in there negotiating hard on behalf of the British people on the other hand that you know it's it's very risky for them to show their full hand at this stage yes and if they don't show their full hand they're getting they're getting people who are not too keen on Britain anyway, coming out and saying that we just have no idea what Cameron's on about. He keeps coming over here, but he never really tells us uh, what he wants. Quite. And, and you know, uh, I think w- we also make the mistake of thinking this is a negotiation between Britain and Germany. Who knows what one of... It ta- we'd only take one other of the 27 countries to come out with a some sort of impossible demand or statement for everything to go to get to go get even more complicated than it already is. There are some interesting suggestions coming out. Uh, one suggestion is that, Europe, uh, that Britain should ask for a, a 20-year delay on workers from new member mm. states. Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. 
But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Coming to work in Britain, so one suggestion is that would be one way around the, the free movement of people problem that we have. But in return for that, Britain would have to pay a lot more into the EU budget. Yes. So either whichever way they turn, they come up against a wall. The problem is Europe is it's 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 a club. You can't just say this is what I want, demand it, and get it. It's all a very very tricky complicated negotiation. And whatever he gets out of it, the Leave campaign is never going to go away. It's not going to be enough for them. Nobody's going to change their mind on the basis of the negotiation on either side. I regard it as a fraud. I I think he hasn't... There is no hand. I I think all the metaphors are totally misleading. He he just wants it to be over. He's going to go and get some old nonsense that no one cares about, and then the people who've always wanted to leave will want to leave, and the people who've always reluctantly thought we'd better stay will reluctantly stay. And I, I don't think the negotiation will change anything if, at all. If that's the case, Phil, should do you think uh, Cameron should just come out now and say, look, the European Union is, is where we want to be, I'm going to campaign for us to stay in and just get on with it? He can't. I think he should have done that before. He can't mm-hmm. say it now, having now put himself in the position that he's in, because that would completely irritate the bunch of Tory MPs who are waiting for, for something. But he, he ought to have done that ages ago. I think he should have taken on the Eurosceptics in his party years ago when he was strong. But he hasn't done any of that, and he is now where he is, where he's landed himself. So he has to go through the charade now of having something that he puts yeah. on the table. If he, do, if he doesn't go through that charade now, the other members of the Cabinet who we know, the, the ones we know who favour out, they would feel they could come out and start arguing at this point as well. So yes. we'd, we'd have a cabinet round going He would have on. taken his party for fools if he were to do that now, and yeah. that would be a far greater sin than anything to do with the European Union. But, Rachel, do you think the um, balance is, is switching on this? Do you think the uh, sceptics are, are making the running at the moment? Not really. I, I just think there is still a group of people in the middle who need to be persuaded to vote one way or the other. They talk about it, all the camps talk about it as like a Christmas cracker. You know, you've got the ins on one end, the outs on the other. And then actually the bulk <laughs> of people are sort of in the middle. And they're going to be... That's why the negotiation is, if you like, a vehicle for mm. making the arguments to them. So you're almost persuading people who kind of reluctantly want to be in okay, he's got some concessions, I can now vote in. And on the same side, the Ayats want to make it that that's to persuade those undecideds to vote out. But I think the problem is he's he, there are a whole bunch of people in his party, including some within the cabinet, who won't be satisfied whatever he gets. And yeah. Because it, and the negotiation is... In a way, a foil. It's not a real thing, but it's but it's it's a, it's important as a sort of symbolic gesture. They're also like. making demands that they know he can't get. Yeah, yeah. demands yeah. that require full treaty change that we know very well is not going to happen. Mm. So yeah. lots of the freedom of movement things on which Theresa May keeps teasing the party are things which. Even in the timescale, you certainly can't get, and you probably can't get at any point. And that's not real negotiation. Mm. That, that's posturing, mm. and there's lots of it going on. Emma, how do you think it's going to turn out in the end? When do you think the referendum is going to be? Will it be 2016 or 17, and then 
well, give us your verdict. My, my hunch is that, that I, th- I agree with Phil. I think uh, Cameron and Osborne just want to get this referendum out of the way as quickly as possible. So my, my hunch would be that it would be the first half of 2016. I certainly hope for all our sakes it is. <laughs> Very hard to predict where it's going to go, though. Yeah. It's very difficult. And the moment yeah. the, the wider public are not engaged with it because it seems very distant and it's it's not something that affects you on a daily basis. The political class are obsessed mm. with it, but they, it hasn't made that transfer yet into an electoral question. But at some point, obviously, it will. I think and for us, we, when the moment the Cabinet's let off the leash, I think that's going to mm. be quite... Yeah. To, see, to see which way they, they race and how quickly. That'll There's also a sort of unpredictability element. Yes. I remember Tony Blair always saying the thing about referendums is that you lose control of the but situation. But I think that's another reason why they don't want to delay it, because mm. the longer you delay it, the more the risk that, that they will lose control and the more the risk, the old cliché, that it will become a referendum on the government rather than on exactly. the issue. Or worse, in a way, on the establishment versus the yeah. anti-politics yeah. vote. So if it ends up... We interviewed Stuart Rose last week and I thought there's a danger of that in campaign being the kind of the establishment with all the grandees from business, politics, everything. And then the kind of cheeky outers, uh, the anti-establishment, anti-politics mm. vote. And that in a way is the hardest battle for Cameron to win. But this is Britain, because so in the end we'll vote for the establishment to carry on. Right, let's move on to Talking the... Um, which. On, which, <laughs> on which bombshell? Uh, uh, move on to the third uh, item on our list. I think this is almost a memo to the news desk from uh, Mr (laughs) Collins, who was saying that whatever madness is perpetrated by this Labour leadership, don't get too excited because it's never going to have the chance of putting it into effect. I think that's what you're telling us. Sort of, but actually I think in news terms, the Labour Party is going to be really, really interesting. I think it's going to furnish the newspapers with loads of really good stories because I think that crazy people who've never run a political party before are intrinsically interesting (laughs) and there'll be plenty of them. There have been plenty already and there'll be plenty more. And quite extreme political positions are really interesting. So actually I think the news desk is going to be really busy, full of very interesting stuff. I think the paper is going to be full of it and and it's going to be very interesting. I don't think analytically any of that will matter. And all I mean by that is that it will add up to a Farago. It won't add up to an alternative government. Mm. So what it means is that for the government, you take something like the tax credits that Rachel was talking about, that could have been a disaster, could yet be a disaster Mm. for George Osborne in ordinary political times. If you had an opposition that you thought, I can see going to them one day as my government, but you can't see Mm. that. So therefore, the tax credit, the scale of the disaster is diminished. So what Jeremy Corbyn is doing is draining politics of its consequences because it doesn't really matter in Mm. the end. There's two things that make consequences uh, diminish in politics. One is time. So you do things early in the Parliament so that you've got long time to forget it, and Osborne's clearly doing that here. But the other is whether you've got the shadow of an alternative government. And if you haven't, you can get away with so much more. And it's already obvious from the early polling that Labour is in a position which is irretrievable. The election is already over and it's lost. And that changes the nature of political action in the meantime. And do you think they they actually care about, or certainly the Corbynistas, do they care about being electable? Do they actually think they're electable? Uh, They're split on that. I mean, lots of them, they certainly don't give the impression of caring, but some of them um, think that they can win. They think there is a path to victory. Um, Lots of them don't. Lots of them think that the, the point is to mount effective opposition. I mean, they won't even be able to do that. 
Effective opposition is actually not very newsworthy. It's quite boring. Ineffective opposition is fantastically interesting. Mm. And there'll be loads of ineffective opposition. But how quickly will the people on the right of the Labour Party tire of this? I mean, will they let them burn themselves out over five years? Or is somebody going to say, enough already, we've got to sort this out and, and, and sort of storm in with a... With a, a a, ch- a leadership challenge. Well, all our um, right of centre columnists in the Times over the last few weeks have been like uh, Danny Finkelstein, Matthew Paris, have been saying it might go mm. a long time. Mm. I doubt that. If you, you th- remember, there was a, a, an attempt on the life of Gordon Brown more than once, certainly the same with Ed Miliband, which was much bigger than people realised, much closer yes. to coming to fruition. Yeah. If only Alan Johnson had said yes, it would have happened. Yeah. So I don't believe that there won't be a similar attempt on the tenure of Jeremy Corbyn. There's bound to be mm. at some point. Now, whether it succeeds or not is a technically difficult question yeah. because you've got to get another person through the membership. I was going to say, the the, at the moment, changed. the selectorate would be the same. It so, would be, but there yeah. will be an attempt, I'm sure, and the, the tactic will be to have a single candidate to, to try and maximise And you think it'll vote. be... So you... Because you, I know a lot of people on the centre-right think that the only way out of this now is is actually to break away, but you think it can still be done or will still be done from within? I think it will and should. I don't think breaking away has got anything to commend it at all because when you divorce in a political party, you have to make sure that you take that you get the Labour Party in the settlement mm. because what happened in the when the SDP went, they got a lot of publicity and a great burst of enthusiasm, but what they didn't bring with them was the bedrock Labour vote. And if you leave and leave behind those loyal foot soldiers and people who just perennially vote Labour, then you're leaving behind everything you've got. Yeah. And I don't believe still, even in a more fragmented political landscape, that you can start your own thing up and expect to become the government. I don't think we've broken quite that yet. There's a lot of fevered mm. analysis at the moment where people think everything's changed and not everything has changed. And if you were the right of the Labour Party were to break away, I think they'd find themselves in a really difficult position as a small party. And yeah. in our electoral system, that, that will do you no favours at all. What's interesting is actually, in a way, the Corbynistas are breaking away from the Labour mainstream, aren't they? And mm. there's quite a lot of the Corbynistas saying, why do we need these right-wingers in our party? And it's almost as if that, if anything, the breakaway is happening that way around. Yeah. And like the majority of... marriage, and we're trying yeah. to make each other leave. But the majority <laughs> of the Labour MPs are not Corbynistas, you know, an overwhelming majority. Mm. And that's what's fascinating. So you've got majority of MPs who want to get rid of him tomorrow and then you've got the majority of the members and affiliated supporters etc who who's just supported him so it's a it's a complete it's a, a absolute conundrum because there's a clash between the two groups who um, determine the future of the yeah. party and that point is crucial about the MPs because for the first time in my memory the members of parliament have both the motivation and the numbers to get rid of their leader that was never quite true with either Brown or Miliband, where there were some supporters, genuine supporters of both those people, and some residual respect. But the from, difference is the members are but far the difference more the members are. to getting rid of him. So what has to happen there is the mem- some of those new members will, will gradually disappear as their renewals come up. Some of them will have to be will be folded in by existing members of parliament who need to not lament the fact that their party's grown, but but be glad about it and to and to take them on. And some of them will gradually think that was a bit of a mistake. Yes. Well, I, you'd think. Emma, wouldn't you, that if the polls go on showing that Corbyn is not making any kind of breakthrough nationally, you would think that possibly tens of thousands of these people who've signed up will in the end think, actually, maybe we should have gone for somebody else. Well, 
you might think that, but you should. I, I, you know, you should probably never underestimate the uh, conviction left wingers have that they're right, mm. even when the polls suggest they're wrong. So I wouldn't uh, hold my breath on that front. But I do wonder whether there's an incentive for the parliamentary Labour Party to move sooner rather than later because of the fear that that constituencies and uh, prospective parliamentary candidates that 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 process could all become stitched up by the 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 more radical left membership and and uh, activist base than what's happening in Parliament. The other interesting thing is there's a mismatch between the MPs who want to get elected, who want power, and these members and activists who aren't interested in winning. And it's back to your point, Phil. And there, mm. there's a sort of, if you like, the Corbyn phenomenon, it's part of this identity politics. People are voting to assert what they believe in. It's almost like a moral statement of their purity rather than a practical way to change the country. I mean, it's just a ridiculous way to think about politics if you want to do anything to help the people you're supposed to help. But that's the bigger fundamental philosophical mm. difference, which yeah. makes yeah. it very hard to see how... Yes. It's, it's very frustrating to, to try and talk to people who believe that, and, and there are plenty of them, and point out to them that the origin of the Labour Party was as the parliamentary wing of the Labour movement, expressly designed to get working men, as it was at the time, into Parliament. That's the point of it. Mm. And that therefore, you, if you turn it into Child Poverty Action Group, you're turning it into something that it never was. Mm. But there is a lot of that, and that and it's argument actually a has to play it's out. It's a very sort of middle-class, oh, you know, yeah. Islington attitude. And well, the Labour Party is now a middle-class party. you make the final prediction, will Labour go into the next election with a viable alternative? Oh, that's a different question. Um, <laughs> I know. I, it will go into the next election with an alternative which is more viable than what it's got. Yes, I think Yvette Cooper will lead Labour into the next election. Wow. That's a good prediction, that. Any any further predictions before we wind it up? Couldn't possibly. <laughs> OK, thank you very much indeed. Emma Tucker, Phil Collins and Rachel Sylvester. Subscribe via iTunes. Head to thetimes.co.uk for more information. If you want to sign up to Redbox, I'm sure you are already, but if you want to sign up, thetimes.co.uk forward slash Redbox forward slash sign up. See you next week. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday 